0: So, if you're taking notes, here's the title of tonight's message. Write this down. It's "Safety in Sovereignty." Safety in sovereignty. Everybody, say that. Safety in sovereignty. Safety in sovereignty. We'll talk about what sovereignty is in a bit, but that's that's the name tonight's message, and a quote that I want to start off with from Max Lucado, uh, and as you know, I, I'm, I'm, this series is based off of this wonderful book that I read called Anxious for Nothing, and we're basically just following along in the book and in the Bible, and, uh, and it, it, that's what's kind of formulating this series, but so we're in chapter two of the book, week two of the series, uh, and all over the Bible, so, uh, but something he says at the very beginning of this chapter, he says, you can't run the world but you can entrust it to God. You can't run the world, but you can entrust it to God, okay? So let me tell you a story before we get into all this. So who's ever been camping before? Raise your hand if you've ever been camping before. Awesome. I love camping. Uh, every year, Danielle uh, and I go camping with her family uh, up in Shaver Lake, and it's super fun, and it's the best. And uh, I used to live in this town called Visalia, which is uh, just a little bit south of Shaver Lake, and uh, and so I lived there my freshman, sophomore year of high school, and uh, my small group leader, his name was Gary. And Gary had this big Jeep. It was, like, lifted 8 inches, had 38-inch tires, which is massive. And, uh, and he had all, all the specs on it, and it was just – he could drive it over a car, in, in a minivan, it doesn't matter. It just – it was fun. So what we would do is we'd go out, and, and uh, we'd rock crawl or four-wheel or whatever you want to call it, but we'd just drive on these trails, and so there'd just be a massive boulder, and Gary's like, We're going over it. You know, <laughs> like sitting in the Jeep, and just, you ever seen that online when people are like driving over big stuff? So we were doing it, it was super fun. And so what we would do is we would, we had this like dumb tradition. First, we'd we we'd buy like three 24 packs of Mountain Dew, and, uh, and then we'd go to this place called Me and Ed's Pizza and get three large meat lovers' pizzas, put them on the hood of the Jeep eat the pizzas, drink half the Mountain Dews, and head up the mountain, and uh, and so, and it'd be, like, late. I don't know why we always did this, but we'd leave at, like, 10 o'clock at night. It was really dumb, and so we'd get up to the trailhead at, like, midnight, and then we're rock crawling for about four hours to, like, four in the morning, and then we, uh, if the weather's good, just lay down a tarp and fall asleep, and then, or if the weather's bad, you... Uh, You know, pitch your tent and then you you go from there. And so, um, so there was this the one of the I think it was the first time I ever went. We were having fun doing the doing the thing. It was super cold, and then we get up there and it's like raining and it's windy and it's like it's just kind of gross. And and everyone's like, oh, dude, I didn't expect it to be like this. So everyone starts putting together their tents and building them up and stuff. And this one guy had this super old school. like, military tent with, like, the pole in the middle, and it was, like, super weird looking, but um, so everyone has their tents. They're built. They're putting them together, and then and this was my first trip, so Gary was my small group leader, and then we had other, like, guys from the youth group there, but Gary was like, hey, Brett, you can stay in my tent with me. Uh, we'll, we'll be warm. I promise. I said, okay. Well, I was like, what do you mean? So, the, so Gary's got a tarp on the ground. He puts his tent up, puts a tarp over the tent in a way that he, like, like five feet off the tent, and a big tarp like this, and so the water would hit there and run off the sides. So the tent was just like perfectly dry. And then he even had like this little battery powered heater he put like in the tent, like and the and his tent was like top of the line, like super sturdy. And so the winds are blowing and the rain's falling. And we hear in the middle of the night, Oh, oh my oh no. And like and like people are just getting soaked by different things. And me and Gary just you know, just snoozing away. This one dude, Josh, he left his tent and he had to go pee and so uh, if you ever been camping and you're a guy, sometimes you just, when nature calls, you just, you just go out in the woods, you know. And so Josh goes out to go, to go pee, and he walks like this, and we hear him walking, walking, walking and then we hear boom, whoosh, uh. So what happened was he's walking to go pee in the dark, and he runs into a tree, and w- and when he ran into the tree, all the water from the tree fell off the branches of the tree onto him, so he's soaking wet, and then, and then that's when the, everybody, uh, when that happened, he goes, uh, (laughs) and he uh, probably said some words I won't repeat or something, but, uh, but we woke up in the morning, and. Me and Gary woke up, ah, you know, the sun's shining, like what a beautiful day, and everyone's just soaked. Everyone's clothes are just dripping wet, and their bags are soaked, and everyone's mad and grumpy. And me and Gary are having a good time because uh, we had shelter, and we were warm. Um, but the point of, th- of this is, have you ever felt in life that you need to, like, find shelter like the storm, like it's cold outside. The storm is is the wind is blowing and everything, and you're fi- just trying to find a safe, dry place. You know what I mean? It seems like the world's crashing in around you, and everything's like everything's rough and it's and, and, and it's cold. And ah, I just need, I just wish I could find a safe place. Anybody ever wish that you could find a safe place? And so this camping trip reminded me of this because everyone else was complaining all night about how cold and wet they were, and I was in a safe place because. Gary took the time to make sure his tent was good, <laughs> and we took the extra. Everyone else went to bed an hour before we did because we took the extra time to put the tent up, and uh, and we were good. And I just realized Emerson, you know who Gary is. Uh, Gary and Vanessa, Mays, yeah, yeah. So it's that Gary. Anyways, Gary's from my cell. He was my smart. Yeah, okay. Long story short. Anyways, that's that Gary. So you could put Gary still has a big jeep. It just has two more doors on it now, but um. So the point is, we we all seek shelter sometimes. And so he, here's another question I want to ask. We've been talking about Paul and how he writes, be anxious for nothing. And we're like, what? How could you even say that? Remember last week when we talked about that? How can you possibly say, be anxious for nothing? What? And so I started thinking, how... How is Paul credible? So when someone talks about a, a subject, like for me, when I talk about the Bible, I'm credible because I, I've put the time into study, I went to school, all these different things, right? Um, or like for my wife, Danielle, if any of you girls have talked to Danielle about overcoming anxiety or stress or anything like that, you know she's credible because she's gone through that, and uh, and I've been on this journey with her, and I've um, gone through some of that too, and so the credibility is there. So he, here's the thing. Um, also, you guys know, like, right now with all the crazy stuff going on in the world and, like, COVID and things like that, and you got some, you got some like, tennis player telling you what to do for COVID, or, and then you have, like, a doctor or a PhD telling you, right? It's like you need some credibility, right? No thanks, um, Oprah. I don't really care what you have to say about COVID. I'll go with, right? Or even, like, Bill Gates. Dude, what? what? You make computers. Lay off. Uh, but you know what I mean? So there needs to be some credibility, But Paul had, here's Paul's credibility. Paul had every excuse to be anxious. Paul was shipwrecked like four times, I think it was, or something like that, something crazy. Paul was almost stoned to death multiple times, stoning to death, old school. They put somebody in a pit, and everybody would take rocks, and they'd throw it at them until they died. So this happened to Paul multiple times, but he lived. There was Roman oppression in his days. The, the, the traditional Jews hated him. Before he was a Christian, the Christians hated him. He was in charge of multiple church plants all over the world. And then he talks about all the time having a thorn in his flesh, so he had some sort of physical ailment that was nagging at him for his whole life. So he had all of these things. and And not to mention... The the scripture where we talked about, he said, be anxious for nothing was in Philippians 4. And when he wrote the book of Philippians, he was sitting in prison. So Paul has every reason and more reasons than any of us do to be anxious. When's the next time I'm going to shipwreck? When's the next time I'm going to get bitten by a poisonous snake? When's the next time that I'm going to get stoned almost to death? When is the next time that uh, the church is going to write a letter to me and say that they're almost falling apart. When, when is the next time I'm going to be imprisoned? When is the next time I'm going to get beaten half to death? These are all things that Paul was probably contemplating. So if we're going to ask somebody how to deal with anxiety, someone who wrote all, most of the New Testament, all, almost all the New Testament after the Gospels, if we're going to ask him, how do you deal with anxiety? What's his prescription? And his prescription starts with rejoicing. If you remember the scripture, it starts off and says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Anybody, you guys remember that? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. So, how is that possible? Rejoice in the Lord always. Doesn't that sound kind of impossible? How do I rejoice in the Lord always? And if that wasn't good enough for him to say that, he says it again. Again, I say rejoice. So it's like he's like, hey, it's like, hey, dummy, you know, <laughs> rejoice. And you're like, but that doesn't make any sense. Half of the statements in the scripture don't make any sense. Rejoice in the Lord always. That doesn't make sense. Be anxious for nothing. That, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you're thinking about how, how can you say that? Rejoice in the Lord always. And so we're going to talk about what that means. Rejoice in the Lord always. How is that possible? Well, it's possible because it's not about a moment or a feeling, but a deep trust and confidence that God is real, he cares for you, and that he's good. That's what rejoicing in the Lord means. It's not about this moment of, I'm rejoicing in the Lord, even though we have moments where we worship and moments where we praise God and moments like David where we run around and dance like crazy because God is so good, but there's, it's more than that. It's more, it's more about being faithful in the rejoicing. It's not about just a moment, just how like fear is about a moment and anxiety is about a trajectory and a long-term thing. The, 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 if fear is just a moment and anxiety is a long-term trajectory, then our solution to anxiety can't be a, sh- a moment and a short-term thing. It has to be a long-term thing. So the rejoice in the Lord always. Why does he say always? Because if you let anxiety go, it'll keep going. And if you let the rejoicing go, it'll keep going as well. Amen. And so like the tent that I was in that stayed warm, we have things in our life that are built to hold strong, to keep us safe, to keep us out of danger. And so we're going to discover over the next couple of weeks what some of those things are. And some of these stabilizers, some of these hypothetical poles in our tent that, that, that hold it up are, are the answers to these questions. And I have, they'll, they'll go up on the screen. But, and the first question is, is anyone in control of the universe and the next question is, does life have a purpose? The next question is, do I have value? That's a really big one. Do I have value? Is this life all there is? And so you think about these, these, these questions, and there's, there's good answers. There's answers that will cure anxiety like this. Is anyone in control of the universe? Yes, God is. Does life have a purpose? Yes, to be a part of God's plan and purpose for it. Do I have value? Yes, God says that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made and I'm a part of that plan. Is, there, is this life all there is? No, there's an eternity with Christ afterwards. Or we could do the other thing. Is anyone in control of the universe? No, it's chaotic and everything just happened because of a big bang. Does life have a purpose? No, it has no point. You're just another clump of cells living here for 80-some years. Do I have value? No, you don't matter at all, actually. Um, and you're just going to live your life and, and move on. Is this life all there is? Yeah, so live it up, because after the lights go off, they never come back on. Do you see the difference in the answers to the questions? The set of answers I said first are the set of answers that God gives us, and the set of answers that I said next are the set of answers the world gives us, and we wonder why the world is so anxious. If I have to answer the question, do I have value with no, of course I'm anxious. If I have to answer, is, there life after, is this life all there is, and I say, yeah, I'm, after it goes dark, it's dark, of course I'm anxious. But I'm not anxious about this life because I know it's just a sliver in, the, in all of eternity for me. Amen? And I know that God's in control of the universe, So one of the constant pillars according to Paul and his life, one of these, in our hypothetical tent that's keeping us safe, one of the, the, probably the middle pole, the most solid one, is the sovereignty of God. And that's why we titled this message, Safety in Sovereignty. And so if you're like, what does sovereignty even mean? Does anybody know what sovereignty means? Does anybody not know what sovereignty means? Raise your hand if you have no clue what sovereignty means. Okay, perfect, all right. This term sovereignty simply refers to God's perfect control and management of the universe. Sovereignty means that God is in control and nobody else is. Knowing he has it figured out, and no matter what, he protects our souls. We talk about this a lot, that Jesus talks about suffering, and if you if you remember from a few weeks ago, I even talked about participating in the suffering of Jesus. And so you're thinking to yourself, Brett, how can I not be anxious when you've told me that I'm supposed to suffer? Well, here's the thing. Our bodies may suffer. We might go through hard times. There might be hardship, but guess what? There's one thing that's really, really important about you, and it's your soul. What's going to happen to your soul after this life? Because the answer to the question of if... Is this life all there is? The answer is no. There's more to this life. And what's going to happen to your soul after this life is either you're going to spend eternity rejoicing with Jesus or you're going to spend eternity far from God. And so what Jesus promises is he doesn't promise that we're not going to go through hard times, but he promises that if we trust him and we love him, he will protect our souls. Which is the most important part about us. Amen? God is involved in all created things, and he has a divine purpose. Check this out. Write this down. Anxiety is often the consequence of perceived chaos. So when you think that everything is out of control, you get anxious. When you think that you have no control over what's going to happen next, you're anxious. When you think that nobody you know has control over what's going to happen next, you get anxious. Anxiety is often the consequence of perceived chaos. It wasn't planned well. Now I'm freaking out. I forgot about that test. And now I'm anxious for it because I forgot. And now everything's chaotic. and Everything in my mind's going crazy, right? Am I forgetting something? Anybody ever done that? You're going on a big vacation. And you're anxious. Why are you anxious? Because there's perceived chaos. I might have forgot something. What was it? It was probably the most important thing I have. (laughs) It's like when when Ben and I went to Ecuador, you know how many times I checked for my passport and my backpack? It was like probably 500 times before I got on the plane. (laughs) It's like, is it there? Okay. Uh, Is it there? Someone steal it? (laughs) Right? It's like this perceived chaos. And remember from last week, the sky is falling and it's disproportionately falling on me. (laughs) Perceived chaos. We think we are the targets of some invisible, evil forces. I don't know why. Has anybody ever said this to you? I don't know why, but the world is just out to get me. I don't know why, but everything bad in this world happens to me. I don't know why, but I can't catch a break. It's just L after L after L after L. No dubs. Newsflash. Life is about having more losses than you have wins. It just is. The point is that the wins hang on. Think about this: Thomas Edison created the light bulb, failed a thousand times at creating the light bulb, and was successful one time. That's a terrible ratio. <laughs> he 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 failed a thousand times and succeeded one time. Which was more important, guys? The thousand. Fails are the one success, right? But, but but check this out. When you when you think about it, the the one the one win lasted forever because of the thousand failures. So then, it, the the reason that life is good or bad is based on your perspective of those thousand fails. To Thomas Edison, those one thousand failures shaped the whole trajectory of his entire life. They were the best thing that ever happened to him. But for some people, at 999 failures, I'm just stupid. I can't figure this out. I'm done. Right? This just wasn't for me, I guess. The world's out to get me. I've tried 999 times to make this light bulb, and it's just not working. Thomas Edison said, well, okay, all right, let me give it one more shot. (laughs) (laughs) right and and look you know what I mean so it's not about winning more than you lose it's about winning purposefully it's like what I said last week it's like I would rather be I would rather fail at something that's meaningful than be really successful at something that matters not at all matters zero I don't want to be really good at something that doesn't matter I'd rather be like relatively bad at something that's really (laughs) meaningful does that make sense you make every you miss every shot that you don't take, Michael Scott, Wayne Gretzky, Michael Jordan all, whoever said it. <laughs> but we think we are the targets of some invisible evil forces, and some here's the thing this is why you've ever met a Christian that's incredibly anxious It's like your aunt on Facebook who's like, "Oh my goodness, I bought some." I bought some wheat thins from the store today and they were six dollars and sixty-six cents. Oh no. It's the mark of the beast, right? Right? The COVID vaccine's the mark of the beast. I'm gonna die. All right, sorry, I didn't need to go there. But we all have that we all have that relative family member that's always freaking out online. Like, oh my goodness, right? Like Joe Biden's a lizard human. You're like, what? You know? Like, are you kidding me? You know? Trump's orange skin is because he lived on Mars for 300 years, and now he's like, okay, relax, okay? It's like, come on, you know? But the reason some Christians are incredibly anxious is because they have an ignorant understanding of who the devil is and how much he's out to get you. Here's the thing. God is omnipresent, meaning that he's everywhere. The devil's not. So if you're like, oh, the devil's out to get me. No, he's not. You're not that important <laughs> to him. I'm just saying, you're not. Think about it. Like, Jeremiah has, has has wonderful things in store for his life. And so I'm not saying that, that evil forces aren't going to come against him. Like, the devil has many, many uh, fallen angels that are with him. We know them as demons or whatever. And so he'll send them out to, to, to give. But the devil himself is probably not going to. Give Jeremiah a hard time. He's probably not probably not going to give me hard time. Maybe once or twice in my life. But the but the devil's one person. Imagine trying to go around to the eight billion people in the world and give them all a hard time. It's just not possible. And so if we always think like oh the devil's out to get me, it's not true. Like oh my gosh, I just know that the enemy's attacking me today, and I because I went to the doctor and my blood pressure's up. You know, and the devil is just out to get me. It's like no. Ethel, you ate 14 Twinkies last night, and that's why your blood pressure's high, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? So, like, there, there's some. I'm not saying that the devil's not real and that evil things aren't real. They are. But I'm saying that we give the devil way too much credit in our lives. Most of us, not most, not most of us here, but a lot of Christians give the devil more credit than we ever give God. Oh, the devil's just out to get me. He's just ruining my life. How many times have you said, wow, God is really on my side. God is just is blessing me, and God is wa- walking with me, and every time I go somewhere, God is just in it. It never happens because, oh, I lost my parking spot at the mall, and the devil just must be out to get me. It's like, no, it's the day before Christmas. The parking lot is just full, you know. Get over it. They got my order wrong at In-N-Out, and so... The devil just wanted to get under my skin today, didn't he? No, there's a there's a brand new person at In and Out, and they got your order wrong. That's how it works, right? But sometimes I'm not saying there's not spiritual warfare. Sometimes the devil really, really does come after us. But the reason I want to tell you that you want to be, you want to know when that is, is because the devil really is only going to come after you if you're a threat to him. The devil's not coming after you about your parking spot at the mall. The devil's devil's coming after you because you're 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 about to start a Christian club on your school campus. The devil's coming after you because you're about to write one of the best uh, worship songs that's ever been written. The the devil's coming after you because you've got a word to speak to your peers and, and and he doesn't want them to hear it. Those are the reasons the devil's out to get you in these moments, right? Not because you stubbed your toe late at night, you know what I mean? <laughs> He's attacking me. He's out to get me. But check this out. This is really interesting. This was in the book. Psychologists did a study on World War II soldiers. Anybody like World War II movies? Okay, so the psychologist did a study on World War II soldiers. And after about 60 days of continuous combat, uh, it, was, it was found that the ground troops became emotionally dead. After 60 straight days of ground combat, bullets flying and everything, they became emotionally unavailable, emotionally dead, just like zombies. And when we feel that we're under attack, the reason I'm saying this is because when we create this perceived chaos that the devil's out to get me all the time because I stubbed my toe and my hot pocket was hot on the outside and cold on the inside, when when we perceive that the devil is always out to get us, it's like being in 60 days of continuous combat and pretty soon we find ourselves emotionally dead. Because we think we're under fire over and over and over and over and over again. Astonishingly enough, fighter pilots in World War II, the same war, fighter pilots had the opposite reaction. Even though their mortality rate was about fifty percent in World War II, if you were a fighter pilot, you had fifty percent chance of living. One in two people, one in two people was going to die. But the reason the pilots felt that that there was more peace that they didn't feel emotionally dead because they had their hands on the controls. They were the ones flying the plane. They were the ones in charge. And they were in the cockpit and their hands were on the controls. So the formula is this. You can write this down. It's going to go up on the screen. The formula is this. Perceived chaos creates fear and anxiety. If the devil's always out to get you, no matter what, all the time, you're going to become emotionally unavailable and emotionally dead, and you're going to be anxious all the time. But perceived control creates calm. If you can grasp that Jesus, that God is sovereign and God is in control and he's got your life in the palm of his hands and he's, and he's got the controls and he knows what's gonna happen next, then it turns out to be peace. Traffic jams have a similar effect. You ever been in a traffic jam and you're just anxious? Oh man. Someone's gonna someone's probably gonna hit my car here. My brand new car. I know how to drive. But there's some there's some 16 year old kid that just got their license and they're gonna run me over, you know. We I, I went to a football game the other day and after the football game, uh, my uh, I went with Jared, my brother in law, and their family came to pick us up because everything was chaotic and we were sitting in this just stop stopped traffic and and Raya who's uh, she's about um, five six years old and um, she she's just real little sitting in her car seat and she just starts weeping. <laughs> Like this, and we're like, whoa, 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 what's going on? She's like, I just want to go home, you know? Because it's perceived chaos. For for one of the first times in her life, she felt like her parents didn't have the situation under control because we're just sitting in stopped traffic. Usually it's like, oh, Dad'll figure it out, we're gonna get out of here. But for some for this, we, we went from basically here to the end of the parking lot, and it took us an hour and a half. Like that from where I'm standing to the end of the parking lot it took an hour and a half. <laughs> this is how traffic jam it was. So Ryan's freaking out. Why? Perceived chaos. So what do we do? You're like, okay, that's great, Brett, but how do we solve the chaos? I don't know. <laughs> okay. Can we control everything? What do you guys think? No. no. Remember last week's stat about the jump, the, the spike of, of, of spending on anxiety medicine in the 1990s? Do you guys remember that stat? You know what else went through the roof in the 1990s? Uh, this little concept called helicopter parenting. Perceived chaos. Can we control everything? No. The reason that the helicopter parenting went up in the '90s, as well as the spending on anxiety medication, is because we tried to gain back control. And and like I just said, can we do it? No, you can't. Max Lucado has this quote. It says, "The only certainty is the lack thereof. <laughs> the only certainty in life is that there's no certainty, <laughs> and that's why the most stressed out people are control freaks. You ever met someone who's stressed out all the time, and then they have to control everything? They can't hand over anything to anybody else. It always has to be them. I got to do. I got to. I got to do it." The world's ending. Uh, I got to do it. I got to do it. Right? Hey, can I drive? No, no, no. I need to drive. (laughs) Everything is like just just controlled. But they fail at every attempt to control the world. That's why they're so stressed out. It's just like this endless cycle. I have to control everything, but I can't control everything, so now I'm stressed about it, and I'm stressed, so I'm going to control everything. (laughs) It's like, (sighs) so what do we do? You're like, Brett, tell me what to do. (laughs) This isn't helping. What does the Bible say? The Bible says instead of trying to take control, relinquish it. Instead of trying to take control, give it away. Remember the first quote I said at the start of tonight's message? I said, you can't run the world, but you can entrust it to God. Peace is attainable. And here's the the kicker. Peace is attainable not because storms don't exist, but because Jesus is on the boat. So so, so the peace is not that I'm never going to encounter a storm and life is never going to be hard. The the peace comes with all of those hardships. Jesus is on the boat. And so just like the disciples, you run to Jesus and say, Jesus, you're in control, right? Okay, good. Because <laughs> if we try to control it, it just doesn't work. And this is the rejoice in the Lord. It's not rejoicing that the storms never came. It's rejoicing that Jesus is in the boat with us. So let your heart leap at the security found in God, the creator of the universe. Paul did this, and I got a bunch of scriptures that we're going to put up. So we can, can we put up the first one, Philippians 1? 12 through 13. And uh, Shabel, when I'm done reading one, just go to the next one. We're just going to rapid fire these, okay? So check this out. He said, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. The thing that he's talking about is being in prison. He's writing this from in prison. He's been beaten almost to death. He's in prison, and he decides to write a letter to people about God. <laughs> what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Well, wow, Mr. Rogers, that's great. So that... It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Next one. Some indeed preach Christ. And so this is another, another instance where Paul is addressing that people are out to get him. And some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here in prison. Uh, for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? So he says, what, what do I do then when people are out to get me? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. He's saying, like, I don't really care. Whether they like me or not, they're preaching Jesus, and that's cool with me. Next one. So 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 then he starts trusting who Jesus is, right? And he says, therefore, God has highly exalted him, him being Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Next one. For it, Oh, yeah, that is the next one. Okay. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's God who's working everything out. That's the whole point, right? And so Paul writes these assurances from prison. Paul believed in the steady, sturdy hand of God Do you. The next one, Proverbs twenty-one thirty: No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. Next one, Hebrews 1, 1, 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the words of His power. Who's in control of the universe? He is, right? After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Jesus is in control. That's what this means, right? And so God's answer for the troubled times in an unstable world, world in a corrupt corrupt government, and who's president and who's going to do this and whatever. The, God's answer to that is that there's a throne in heaven and it's occupied. Someone's sitting on the throne in heaven, someone's in charge of all the universe. And it's not whoever just won the election for the United States. God sits on the throne. The Bible says we are God's children. You can go, you, you ever had this moment where you're like, hey, my dad could beat up your dad at school? Ever, anybody ever said that or anything? Hey, my dad's stronger than your dad, right? So I look at, I look at Satan in the face and say, hey, my dad's going to beat you up. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> God says I'm his child, right? I've got security in Jesus. So check this out. There's this, there's this section in this book that I think is really good, and I, I would love for you to hear it. I'm going to read it real quick. Um, okay. Listen up, this is story time, okay? This is really good. At 10 years of age, you are a bit young to comprehend the accomplishments of a renowned surgeon. But you're not too young to stumble down the stairs and twist your ankle. Everybody, Anybody ever twist your ankle? You roll and writhe on the floor and scream for help, and you are weeks away from your first school dance, and there's no time for crutches, no time for limping. You need a healthy ankle. Yours is anything but... Into the room walks your dad, still wearing his surgical scrubs, and he removes your shoe, peels back your sock, examines the injury. You groan in the sight of the tennis ball-sized lump on your ankle, and adolescent anxiety kicks in. Dad will never walk again. Yes, you will. No, no one can help me. I can. No one knows what to do. I do. No, you don't. Your dad lifts his head and asks you a question. Do you know what I do for a living? Actually, you don't. You know that he goes to a hospital every day, and you know that people call him doctor, and your mom thinks... He's smart, but you don't really know what your father does. So, he says, as he places the bag of ice on your ankle, it's time for you to learn. The next day, he's waiting for you in the school parking lot after class. Hop in. I want you to see what I do. And he drives you to the hospital office and shows you the constellation of diplomas on his wall. Adjacent to them is a collection of awards that include words like distinguished and honorable. And he hands you a manual of orthopedic surgery that bears his name. Uh, Dad, did you write this? I did. I did. His cell phone rings after the call he announces we're off the surgery, and you scrub up and follow him into the operating room, and during the next few minutes you have a ringside seat to a, for, to a procedure in which he reconstructs a broken ankle. And he is, the, he is the commandant of the operating room. He never hesitates or seeks advice. He just does it. One of the nurses whispers to you, your dad is the best. As, two of you, as the two of you ride home that evening, you look at your father, and you see him in a different light. If he can conduct orthopedic surgery, he can likely treat a swollen ankle. So you ask, you think I'll be okay for the dance? Yes, you'll be fine. And this time you believe him. Your anxiety decreases as your understanding of the Father increases. Some of our biggest fears are just twisted ankles to God. God's like that surgeon in the story, and we twisted our ankle. God, I, it's all, it's all, my life is just falling apart, God. He's like, you just twisted your ankle. You're going to be okay. No, I'm not, God. You don't understand. I'm not going to be okay. And he's like, you're, you're fine. I promise. I've got a plan. I know what's going to happen. You're going to be okay. No. But as your, as your understanding of the Father increases, your anxiety decreases. But sometimes we refuse to trust the orchestrator of all the world's moments with whatever's next in your life. A lot of us think that we're dying from that sprained ankle. If we trust God and we ask him if we're going to be okay, we'd hear him say, yes, child, you're going to be fine. I have a plan. And so for the next couple of minutes, I, I just want you to close your eyes and Kevin, if you want to come up and just play something real sweet, so we can have just a moment, and everyone, bow your heads and close your eyes. I, I, I want to just ask a couple questions of you. And who needs to relinquish power of the world back to God? Raise your hand if you just need to relinquish the power. You're trying to be in control of your life. You're trying to be in control of everything that happens. You're anxious about everything. And God's saying, be anxious about nothing because I have it all in control. And keep your hands up. And But I'm going to pray. But you have to trust that God will come through like he always does. You have to trust that God is that orthopedic surgeon that knows exactly what's wrong with your ankle. Others see the problems of the world and bang their head on the wall because of frustration but we see the problems of the world and we bend our knees and lift our eyes up to Jesus. And here's the thing for everyone that raised their hand there's nothing that you're going to face that God can't handle. There's nothing in the world that's going to come your way that God doesn't already know is coming your way. There's nothing that's going to happen in your life no surprise, no accident, no tragedy that God doesn't know is coming and so those of you that raise your hand, would you raise it again nice and high and I, I just want to pray for you and I don't know if uh, Ben cut the live stream yet, but if he didn't, if you're online, you can raise your hand too. If, if you're struggling with anxiety, if you're struggling with letting loose of control over to God, you could just raise your hand right where you're at and I'm not going to call anybody to the front so we can let it run. I'm just, I just want to pray for you right where you're at but I want you to believe in your heart that God is in control, and so let's, let's pray. Jesus, we just lift, we lift you up, God. We rejoice in who you are. We rejoice in your sovereignty. That, that there is a ruler of the universe, and it's you, and that you know everything that's going on, and you know everything that's going to happen to us, and you know all the tough times that we're going to go through, God, and, and it's not that you're saying we're not going to go through them, but you're saying that we're going to get through them, God, and it's like the twisted ankle in the story that it seems really bad in the moment, but God, you say that we're going to be all right, and so Lord, help us all with our hands raised, and even everybody that didn't raise their hand, help us to trust that it's going to be okay. Help us to know that you care for us and that you love us. And when you call us your children, you really mean it. And that we're not some outcast and we're not some, some person who doesn't fit in. And, and you, when you say that we're fearfully and wonderfully made, when you look at us, you smile. And you don't look at us and, and cry like we oftentimes do looking in the mirror, God. You look at us and you smile and you say you're, you're fearfully and you're wonderfully made and you're very good. So God, help us to trust you. Help us to not worry about what's going to happen next because it's not up to us. God, you have the plan. You have the purpose. You have what's going to happen next. And so God, help us not to try and take back control over our lives, but help us, God, to give it all to you. We give you our lives tonight. We ask you, Lord, to just be in the midst. In Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Love it. Was it good? <laughs> everybody feel good. Hey, this—I I just think this series is going to be really impactful, and so I just want to reiterate a couple things. If you can invite any friend, just get them here next week and the week after that. And I just think these these sets of series of sermons are just going to change their life, right? And so, just get your friends here, and everybody be here on Sunday if you possibly can, because I just think that I think the message that. That Pastor John Zick is going to preach is just going to be so impactful that it could change your life, Amen. And so here's the thing I'm going to do, um, different than what we normally do. But Kevin's going to keep playing for a little bit, and I'm just going to sit here. And if anybody wants specific prayer um, about anything, just come see me, and, and I would love to pray for you. Is that cool? And and it's just it's it'll be private. I'm not going to tell anybody about your issues. But if you got something going on, or if you if you want to find. Um, Danielle, if you're if you're especially if you're a girl, if you want to find Danielle or another girl leader and you want some prayer, um, uh, go ahead and do that. But even if you're a leader and you want you want some prayer, don't be ashamed. Come and come and see me. Let's let's talk. Let's pray. Um, and then. Uh, Pastor Jeff will be available too he'll, he'll see if I'm getting overwhelmed he'll come down and pray. so but everybody else will we stand up and, uh, and, and if you are good and you're feeling and feeling good and you don't need any prayer right now that's okay I'd love to I'm going to dismiss you and you can go hang outside and play around and do whatever you want to do but for those of you that want to talk and even if it turns into us having a little small group session and talking about life a little bit right now, that's cool too and if it's nobody I'm, I'm glad that the message blessed you enough that you're feeling good okay so um we love you um this is your official dismissal you can go hang out outside go do whatever you got to do if you don't need prayer but if you need prayer uh you can come see me up here in the front and i'd love to pray for you okay ready set go